Welcome to Dugout Study Hall, a remedial course in baseball stats and proud member of the Pitcherless Podcast Network. I'm your host, Matt Goodwin, and on this episode, I bring you a conversation between my guest host, Van Burnett, filling in for Alexander, and our esteemed guest, Mr. Chris Clegg of Fantrax. We will be talking about how to construct a dynasty roster, first-year player drafts, roto versus points, dynasty leagues, and so much more. So without further ado, here is that conversation. Thank you both for uh, joining me here tonight on this very special episode of Dugout Study Hall. Uh, Chris, how you doing? Oh man, I'm doing great. It's an awesome day to sit here and talk some baseball. And every day is good to talk baseball, but here we are, <laughs> right around Christmas in the new year. I know we're in the middle of a lockout, but hey, it's always good to be chatting some baseball and fantasy baseball at that. And it's good to be with you guys. I'm, I'm excited to be here, and thank you for having me. I'm really, really looking forward to this show. Uh, we're we're super excited to have you, and and I'm excited to have a special guest host on this episode, Van Burnett uh, from the Winds Above Fantasy Pod. How you doing, Van? Doing great. Thanks for having me, Matt, and thanks for uh, joining, Chris. Both of you guys, I love your work. Love tuning in, Matt. You guys always sound so clean and crisp on the audio, and I liked hearing your background <laughs> before we started. So now it, it's great to fill in, Alexander. You know, if I can if I can fill a third of kind of the brain space that he covers, then I'll look at that as a huge <laughs> success. Yeah. But yeah, love love the work you guys do too over at, at Fan Tracks and everything, Chris. With, between you and Eric, you guys are definitely a resource for me, and um, also so I guess open and polite and kind of accommodating to people on Twitter and always responding. So mm-hmm. it, it's been uh, cool to kind of interact with you guys through the years, and it's awesome to meet you in person. So. Looking forward to it yeah, for sure, for sure. Man, appreciate those kind words. It's, like I said, it's going to be a good time tonight chatting with you guys. Yeah, well, those kind words are definitely well-earned. I think one of the things uh, that uh, is, is the most amazing about this fantasy baseball community that we have is how supportive people are and uh, and how welcoming. And there's always the pockets. And, and Alexander and I have talked about this on previous previous episodes. You know, there's there's always those people. But for the most part, there's a lot of support and a lot of trying to prop people up and be in there to answer questions. And, um, you know, I don't know if everybody knows how many people in this industry are doing it kind of in their hobby time, you know, um, and how much time they're dedicating to try and, and help people be successful and enjoy playing fantasy. So uh, I thank both of you for the time that you put into that. And I don't know if you know this, so this might be a surprise announcement for both of you, but New Year's Eve day is when this episode is dropping. That's when everybody is listening to us right now, hopefully the first day that it comes out. So this is actually a very uh, festive episode. We are looking at turning the page from 2021 into 2022 and hopefully putting some things behind us maybe in the rear view. Um, and a new exciting baseball season, hopefully on the horizon, uh, if the lockout doesn't doesn't uh, derail that. So, so much to look forward to, so much to talk about. Um, I want to go to Van first real quick. Um, you actually have your own pod on the Pitcher List Network, uh, podcast network. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Wins Above Fantasy? Yeah, so Wins Above Fantasy, we are kind of a, a general industry podcast. So primarily focus on redraft, and I am partnered up with Steve Giswelli, who is my uh, new kind of like my fantasy pen pal, I was randomly assigned and paired <laughs> up with. And Steve's, uh, you know, he's great. He's this Italian guy from Hoboken, New Jersey. And right away, we kind of fell into an, a, a fun rhythm. And uh, it kind of, yeah, I'm sure you can relate, Matt, but kind of develop a little bromance, a little relationship. Steve sure. invited me out to his wedding because we were both getting married. So the first time I met Steve in person was here in this Jersey chapel with a bunch of people I've never met. 
and his <laughs> wife, Lauren, in her vows as my fiance, Alyssa is right next to me. She's like, yeah. And even with Steve's three monitors, shout out to Van and wins above fantasy and everyone like turns and points at <laughs> me. So yeah, we do. We cover just a range of topics, but it's very player based. So We'll do a lot of things, uh, you know, in season on like waiver waiver wire comparisons. If you need a shortstop, we'll kind of do head to heads, um, but mainly focus on redraft. And it's just been a blast. We're 38 episodes in. We've had some fun guests. We just did a show with Paul Spore, which was really cool because yeah, he's another one I kind of kind of grew up listening to. So it's a blast. If you guys want to check us out um, on Twitter, we're at Wins Above Pod. And we usually in the off season, put our content out every other Monday on the main picture list feed. So um, yeah, check us out, but uh, love, love the, the opportunity to jump on here and kind of spread the word and also pitch in for Alexander. So yeah, thanks a lot, Matt. Um, I was, I was telling the story a little bit before I'm going to blow up Alexander's spot here a little bit. Um, he, he actually gave me this recording date as being free and open and then told me after I already scheduled everything that it was not. So um <laughs> A great co-host, not necessarily the best with schedules and times and such. Uh, we miss Alexander, but uh, Van, we're super glad to have you. Uh, Chris, turn to you for a moment. Um, I would love to get your backstory uh, in terms of how you came into the industry. What what kind of came before that? How did that all come together? Yeah, so I guess I started playing seriously like back in 2015. Yeah. You know, dabbled in some fantasy baseball before that, obviously played football for a long time, grew up playing baseball, loved the game. And so in 2015, a buddy actually invited me to a pretty competitive league that he ran. And it was the first time that I had actually like put money in a league and played for for cash. And I ended up actually winning that first year. And that drove <laughs> nice. like just so much excitement into it. It was sure. like the whole season was just like, you know, so fun. And it was like, a new experience that I never had. And so, you know, after winning that year, it just like got more and more into it. Like I joined a dynasty league the next year and got all into prospects. Like that was kind of mm-hmm. my segue to really fall in love with like prospects and, and evaluating them in that sense. And that's how it kind of started was just, you know, evaluating them. Cause I wanted the best prospects on my, my dynasty sure. team. And so <laughs> it started kind of small like that. I started, I got in some random 30 team dynasty league that I found on oh, Reddit man. actually. And I didn't know anybody in the league, but you know, I was just out to, to get better and and learn more about dynasty. And then it was kind of became where I wanted to just, I wanted to play with all the guys I look up to. We we talked a little bit about that. Like, you know, the Paul Spores, like all Mm. those guys that I always read and like, I wanted to play against them. And so like I learned about TGFBI and tout wars and all that stuff. I was like, man, that would be so cool. Like to, to be in those leagues and play against those guys. And so I just started a small blog and I don't even know if anybody read it, but I started that in the beginning of 2020 actually, and, you know, wrote a few articles here and there, put some stuff out on Twitter. And then about that time, uh, Michael Simeon, SP streamer, had put an ad out that he was looking for some writers. And I was like, mm-hmm. you know what? He's a pretty great guy. Like, I'd followed his work the year before. I was like, I'm just going to apply and see where it goes. Yeah. And so, you know, I applied. I sent some articles to him that I'd written. And, you know, it started there with, with Michael. And he was really great in um, getting getting me involved in the industry and teaching me a lot that he had learned because he was still actually fairly new at that point because mm-hmm. I think he had really started in 2019. And that was right when COVID started as well. So, yeah. you know, when we have the shutdown and the quarantine, it was kind of like, well, I don't have much else to do. So I'm just going <laughs> to write and research about baseball. And so it started from there. And then we at SP Streamer actually had a little merger at one time with it made that became Roto Fanatic. So I was over at Roto Fanatic for a little bit. And then end up joining a dynasty league that uh, 
Nathan Dynasty One Stop runs, and that's how I met Eric Cross. Actually, is in that okay. league, and so I connected with Eric there, and they were looking for a couple writers, and he had seen some of my work, and so he was like, "Do you be interested in writing a fan tracks?" And I was like, uh, "Shoot!" Like yeah. I'd always looked up to Eric Cross. Like you know, it's funny we we go back, and I can go back and search like our Twitter handles, and like questions I had asked him over the years. It's so yeah. funny to look back at that. And like, you know, 2017, I'm sitting, like, I've tweeted Eric all these questions. It's so it's cool to see. And, you know, Eric's become like a really good friend. And like kind of the rest was history from there. Like we started the podcast. We have a lot of similar interest in prospects and dynasty and even redraft too. Like, you know, I play all sorts of leagues, but dynasty and prospects is kind of like my thing, my focus. And so that's where it started. The rest kind of history. Eric's become like a really close friend. We got to hang out at First Pitch Arizona, which was was pretty awesome, you know, and a lot of the people out there, everybody was so great. So that was a cool experience. And if you've, if you've never been, I just highly recommend going just because there's so many, like we talked about, there's so many great people in the industry that support and uplift right. people. And it's weird. You only know them from Twitter and you only... You, you yeah. think you know about these people <laughs> and you have the perception, but then you meet them and they're like totally different. So, you know, that was, that was a really cool experience to, to see, but everybody was so awesome and kind. So yeah, that's kind of a little bit about my story and, you know, I just consider myself a fantasy baseball degenerate that is completely <laughs> addicted to this game and writing about it and talking about it. So yeah, well, I can tell you definitely from firsthand experience that there are people who are going to wind up being writers in this industry who are sending you those those tweets and asking you those questions now and following your lead. So thank you for for that. You know, having people in the industry who want to pay it forward is, is huge. Um, I definitely the the first pitch Arizona thing. I I want to go so bad. It's I, I'm a teacher and the timing uh, of it. It's just so hard to to make tough. it work, but. I, I'm I'm determined to figure out how to how to make it all work for next year for sure. Yeah. Uh, Van, question for you: uh, What is your? And this is a total segue. This is a total non sequitur, non segue segue. What yeah. is your favorite thing about December? That knowing that people are now listening to this on the very last day of December, what is your favorite thing about December or or your favorite December memory? Man, that is a uh, great question. Is it baseball or just anything? Nope, anything at all. We're going to get into baseball. We got time. Yeah. Um, so I think to, to, to hit on the, the baseball one briefly, I'm the commissioner of, of my 20-year-old home league, which is half uncles of, of mine and my brothers <laughs> and then half our friends since like fifth grade. So we've grown up and seen these dynamics of like my uncle Dave, who's like, basically like a survivalist and he like hunts deer and he's like, like making his own beef jerky and then my friend who like played basketball at illinois who i never would put the two together and then they're like hanging out in this league <laughs> and in december every year i would ho i host the banquet where we we look back and we basically do awards from the previous year we talk about new rule updates uh we plan like when the draft or the draft order drawing all that stuff so that would be my baseball one for just general december I think it's probably, I think it's probably Christmas Eve because that's when, as I've gotten older, I, I spend time with my immediate family. Now it's like the whole four mm -hmm. Christmases, which I know you guys are <laughs> married with kids. You can definitely relate, but Christmas Eve is the time where it's like kind of the, the OG family and we get to spend some downtime and just pop a movie on, get the fireplace. So it's definitely nice, especially in these past couple of years with the world flipping upside down to be able to have like that good old fashioned, like living room time with the, you know, the sweatpants on and you feel like there's no pressure of the events and all that stuff. So that's, that's probably right up there for me, but how about you? That's a great question for me. 
uh, for me, it's again, as a teacher that, that afternoon after the last day, uh, when we're going to have that Christmas break, um, and you really get to dive in and, and I was a dad, obviously watching my girls get super excited, kind of leaning into that. I get to kind of take a deep breath and, and look around and, and most importantly for me anyway, um, I like to reflect on the things that matter cause I get so stuck sometimes in the day to day and, you know, getting so frustrated about this dumb thing and frustrated about that dumb thing and, and being able to just take a deep breath and, and sit back every December kind of feels like a reset button in that way. And, um, think about what really matters, give my girls a hug, you know, hang out with my wife, do those kinds of things and, and get a little break from school. Those, those are definitely my, my favorite moments uh, of December. Uh, Chris, what about you? Yeah. And my wife's a teacher actually. So I, I totally feel you there. Mm-hmm. I guess the family aspect for sure. Like it's a busy time, you know, with so many Christmases, once you get married, it's yeah. like, you gotta go here <laughs> and there. Fortunately, my family's pretty close. They're about an hour away. My wife's family's about three hours away. So you know, a lot of traveling, but it's just, I think, honestly, Christmas Eve probably is it for me too. Just the time where it's the calm before the storm, I guess, before yeah, we go yeah. everywhere, but it's the nice where you can kind of sit down and, and relax and just be with your family. And even as a, a young kid, I remember like Christmas Eve was always my favorite as well. Just spending that, we have the traditions that we did on Christmas Eve and just spending the time with the immediate family. So yeah, that, that comes to mind too. But Christmas break and having my wife home and obviously having a son now, having him home, he's not at daycare. So that's kind yeah. of nice just to, to spend a little more time with them. So yeah, Christmas is great. December's great. Even though I don't like the cold weather. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's yeah. cold enough in South Carolina. It was like 55 today. That was that was too cold for my liking. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I'm up, up here in New England. It, oh, uh, yeah. It definitely gets a touch colder than that. But it hasn't, been, yeah. it hasn't honestly been too bad. And thank you very much for bringing that up because I don't know if both of you know this, but here on Dugout Study Hall, uh, we have inadvertently created that we have to talk about weather at least once per episode, which we usually get off the bat early on. So there you go. Uh, we did now it. we have we've t- ticked that box, and we can talk about baseball now. Yeah, that's that's like the that's like the best part after December, right? Is like the world wakes <laughs> yeah. up to baseball, and they're like, "What's next?" It's like you know, it, for me at least, in redraft, it was always like once the holidays were over, it was like full bore going in on, on research and everything. Time. Yeah. For dynasty, yep. it's a little more around the clock. <laughs> sure. That's the best sure. part of dynasty is never ends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was it, was it Matthew Barry that tweeted something about what are you going to be sitting on your couch in a couple months and not watching yeah. football? I was like, yeah, you can watch baseball. <laughs> yeah. I was like, man, it's not like he never did baseball. I mean, that's yeah. where talented Mr. Roto comes from. Right. Um, so we have a segment on, on Dugout Study Hall called Pass Fail. We generally have it at the end of our show, but I think for these off-season episodes, it makes a lot of sense to move it up. So I moved it up. Um, and I have a couple of things that I want to get your takes on. Generally, we say it's a pass-fail segment, and then neither of us gives, us gives it a grade. So we'll see. Hopefully, we can actually give something a grade here. But uh, let's start with uh, uh, points leagues and roto leagues. Um, a lot of times we talk about uh, roto stuff, roto ranks, all of those things. But there's a, a lot of people out there that play points leagues. So, pass fail, uh, Chris. Points leagues. I'd say pass because I think it's a big market. I think oftentimes as analysts, like we tend to focus on what we like best, and mm-hmm. we often miss the market. Like I think that 
And a lot of people have gone the NFBC route, which is fine. But we have to think like such a small portion of people play on NFBC as compared to like our reader base. And right. we have so many people that are still playing on the Yahoos and the ESPNs and they're just playing these head-to-heads points leagues. And so I think that that niche needs to really be addressed. And that's something like I'm kind of working towards a little bit is to try to find that void and fill it for people because I've had a lot of people reach out and say like, mm-hmm. hey, like when I, when I put stuff out and say like, what do you want? Like what content do you want? A lot of people say points leagues aren't covered at all. And so I think that's a major thing. And it's an easy flaw for me to overlook because I mostly only play Roto. So mm-hmm. now I've got to get into some points leagues. If I'm going to write about it, I think I have to play it too. So I'll give it a pass. And you've started to do some ranks, uh, yeah. published your first top 50 lists. I think today we're recording on the 22nd of December. Yeah. So uh, published today. What's that process like for you? Uh, it's tough. It's a lot different because there's so many aspects that go into it that don't go into like Roto ranks. And so when I'm doing like a dynasty Roto rankings, it's, it's a lot easier because you're looking at specific categories. And for points, you have to input so many different things and think about so many different aspects as well. So, you know, I I had this vision that I would have like this full blown 500 done, like already (laughs) when I set out to do this, like a couple months or like a month ago and it hasn't happened. So I'm going a little bit slow, but it's fine. I think that's sometimes okay. Like to take it step by step because I'd rather it be done well than just try to rush it and say, here you go. But you know, I, I dropped 50 today. I'll try to get another 50 done later this week and kind of build on it from there. So yeah, it's points leagues is definitely a different world because like I mentioned, there's just so many aspects you have to think about, like, especially like in rotos, like I don't care about how much a hitter strikes out, but in a points right. league, like, like that's something you, you certainly have to. have to factor in. So like a Joey Gallo is taking a massive hit in that format because he strikes out. So it doesn't matter how many home runs he hits, how many points he gets for, if he gets four points for home run, he's still striking out so much. It's definitely right. cutting him down. So those are all factors you have to think about when, when weighing and ranking these guys. Yeah, absolutely. Van, what are, what are your thoughts on points leagues? So, I mean, for, for the good of the game and, and kind of appealing to audiences and having that content out there, I'm all for the, the pass. And I love that Chris, you guys are providing that out there. I, I know some, some, some podcasts, some teams are kind of better at, at providing content for that, but it's definitely a need. I mean, it, it's the primary way to do football. And I think there's a lot of that mm-hmm. spillover audience. So I think it's so important selfishly and personally, I love categories leagues, even when it's head to head, just because I feel like it, it notches up the strategy a little bit of like, you know, this guy's got three closers, so I might not beat him on saves. Let me go try to win innings pitched and strikeouts and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But actually I mentioned that home league earlier as a joke, and it's such a huge part of my fantasy story. Cause it's like from fifth grade on through, you know, being in my thirties <laughs> and our, our categories are actually set up in a way that's like, we have triples, we have doubles, we dock for strikeouts. So like my ears always perk up when I hear like a Scott White at CBS throw out like, yep. yeah, for points leagues, I want to highlight these guys are very strong. And I'm like, oh, these are guys that are relevant for me. So I can imagine what it would be like if you're in a points league and you have to always hear about Roto and, and five by five. So yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pass on the industry content in terms of if I were starting a league, I'm always going to go head to head categories. Cause I think categories yeah. brings in the strategy, but I love the head to head of just like being able to text your buddy or your opponent and, and kind of having that little element of luck, even though truly Roto is, I think everyone agrees is 
probably has the least amount of disputes at the end of the year, right? When when somebody's crowned champion, but that's kind of where I fall with it. Yeah, I, I find points leagues to be really engaging uh, for a couple of reasons. One, when your guy goes off, uh, it really impacts. So you got a guy who has has a night, hits for the cycle. Um, you get a guy who throws a no hitter or, or is sniffing a perfect game. Those are like weak winners. That's a great those point. moments. Yeah, great call. Um, and so those things are really exciting. As I've kind of faded away from playing in points leagues, I've had a couple of guys throw no hitters in, in my my categories leagues, and it's like, oh. That's pretty cool, I guess. I've already won uh, it. I've already won strikeouts. Yeah, 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 right, right. Uh, I guess I'm really winning whip now. I mean, it's so it's um, it, there. There's I, I like that element a lot about points leagues in that like everything that goes into making a player who he is is kind of accounted for. Um, where you know in in roto, uh, you know the triples and the doubles. Unless you're you're doing something that that counts, you know OPS or something like that. It's just it's neat. He's on base. That's great, but uh, you're not really getting the full value of that. Whereas in points leagues, you do. And there are these leagues that are springing up now that aren't even head to head points. They're they're built like roto leagues, but with points. So whoever has the most points at the end, uh, you know, accumulating points over the course of the season wins. So lots of different formats out there. It, I think it's amazing that that you're you're moving into that content because it really is very different. If you're trying to draft a, a points leagues with roto ranks and and you're not understanding that nuance, that's really really challenging. And and one of the things that that Alexander and I talk about a lot is you know there's a lot of really serious players out there and there's a lot of really casual players out there. And expecting all of those people to be able to have the, that nuance in their head and, and be able to go and make those adjustments. And there, are, there are people who are, are drafting off ESPN standard ranks and, and don't have a single spreadsheet, you know. And, and so having that content available, I think, is really, really important and helps push the industry and, and maybe get some more players in. So uh, I think that's pretty cool. Um, I've got one more pass fail for you because this is new news. Uh, a relatively recent news, and, and we haven't had a lot of that in baseball with a lockout since the flurry of activity. And that is that the New York Mets have finally found their their manager in Buck Showalter. I'm very interested on your takes on this. Chris, pass or fail, Buck Showalter, New York Mets manager. Oh, well, as a, a Braves fan, I, I kind of want to say fail, but <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, skeptical to an extent i think that you know in the way that we're the game is moving like in terms of analytics like i think people assume these older managers can't adapt Mm -hmm. but you just saw two of the oldest managers in the game meet in the world series right and so i'm not saying that it's i think it could work i mean we've seen we saw la russa with the white Sox. obviously obviously that's like a whole different ball game here show alter's obviously been out for a couple years but he did win with with less in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, you look at those years when when he had 90 wins and they really weren't dominant teams. They didn't have any standout type players. They were guys that just got the job done. And so you have to wonder how much he really factored in. And and that still is a question that I toy with a lot. Like how mm-hmm. much can a manager actually impact the game? And that's a tough question to really answer. But there are things like stolen base rates that are right. good tendencies to look at with managers. And that's something that I've been trying to look at a little more. And we look and 
it's interesting, like, how will he manage, like, a Starling Marte? Like, how much is he going to let him run? And so, you know, I, I'm thinking about it in two different ways. Like, I'm thinking about it from, like, a fantasy standpoint. I'm thinking about it from, like, a real-life standpoint. Right. And so I think it's a pass. I think it's a pretty easy pass because he's he's a proven winner, and he's going to have a ton of talent on the field. He's going to have the may have the highest payroll in MLB history, which is <laughs> nuts. They're just throwing dollars everywhere. But, yeah, I'll give it a pass because I think that – it will work. I think they'll find a way to to make it work, but it's going to be interesting. It'll be interesting to see how he really gels with the team. There's so many mm-hmm. factors that go into to that with with being a manager. So it should be fun to watch for sure. Van, how do you feel about this? Yeah, I, I'm I'm a definite pass. I think just looking at the Mets and and where they're at, and Steve's based right out there, so he's always laughing at LOL Mets and Mets gonna Mets, all that <laughs> stuff. It's like they've shooken their world upside down, you know, with Steve Cohen, they've been through, I think it's like three or four director of baseball operations. So when they brought in Scherzer, and I think there was a, a rumor, you know, a couple of weeks before Showalter got announced that Max Scherzer had kind of said he would want Showalter as a manager. Mm. It kind of like put the light bulb out there for me that like, it's been a while since the Mets have had kind of true leadership. It seems like even like, you know, off the top, like a David Wright or someone who is kind of like the stabilizing presence for them. So I think Showalter will be really great with Scherzer, obviously DeGrom, but like when you look at where they're going and the fact that they've had their struggles, but it it marries up with the fact that Buck has never won a World Series. And it's like the one thing that's eluded him. I think it's a really good combination and it should be healthy all around. He's He's supposed to be very smart in game. Uh, bullpen management, all of that stuff. But what Chris had mentioned is the is the big question that everyone is asking. Um, how how will he do with analytics and the fact that Steve Cohen's built this kind of analytical culture? To me, that's that's the question that Buck's already addressed and said, you know, I'm all for it. I sponge that stuff. We just didn't have the funding with Baltimore. So, you know, you can you can say that, but then you think, for an old school guy like that, you hear quotes from Joe Madden talking about it. You know, you got Kevin Cash pulling Blake Snell because it's the third time through the order in the game six of the World Series. Like, will Buck really want to let analytics drive that much of kind of his old dog mentality? So it's not going to be short of headlines, I'm sure, with, you know, New York media and everything. <laughs> but I think it makes a, a lot of sense. Um, and from like a neutral uh, NL Central Cardinals fan here in Peoria, Illinois. From a neutral perspective, Chris, I'll, I'm pumped up to just see what goes on in that division because I think it's definitely a grab the popcorn type of thing. Yeah, so it's a wild division. There's gonna be a lot of good teams next year. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I think the the Mets bringing in in Showalter is maybe the best element of all of it. Is is the thing that the Mets seem to struggle with the most is just managing the personalities, right? And and so the on field decisions maybe are a little bit less important to your point, Chris, about like a lot of this stuff in terms of like what you're going to do during a game. It's, it's not like, it's pretty clear. I think most major league level managers and people who've been around the game for a long time kind of know what strings to pull in different places. And obviously we put under a microscope, those moments where it could have gone one way and didn't work out. Uh, But I think the biggest piece here is, is being able to be a credible uh, source of management of the players' personalities, but also the personalities that are in the front office as well, and then the ownership. That's going to be, I think, the 
where the Mets need to come together and gel if they're going to be a successful franchise because they've proven in the past that they can they can lose with talent <laughs> because they get in their own way. So hopefully that's the thing that that uh, well hopefully from the Mets perspective, not from the Atlanta Braves fan perspective. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh he he comes in and, and brings a little bit of stability to that and and can get some of those antics off the, you know, the back page of the post or, or whatever it is that's going on. Um I want to move into one more segment. We can do it pretty quickly before we uh, take a, a quick break and then get into like really talking about dynasty uh, construction, uh, drafts, um, first year player drafts, all of those types of things. And and that's looking at numbers of the week. And, and what I'd like to ask you, Chris, is when you're doing your rankings, this is something that fascinates me, especially in dynasty. Um, I'm curious as to what numbers you use as primarily zeroed in on like the tiebreakers and the deal breakers, uh, what really drops somebody? What really brings them up? How do you get the nuance between two people? How do you rank a 17-year-old versus a 19-year-old versus a 30-year-old? Um, what are the numbers that are really driving those decisions for you? Well, that's that's tough because you're right. There's so many different factors. Uh, really, one of the biggest factors is, is age. So when you think about a tiebreaker, like if we've got two similar players, like age is always going to be a factor in that. I want mm-hmm. the, the younger player in that aspect. but And then we think about it, and in a sense, like a lot of the older players get devalued in a dynasty league because everybody wants to go so young, and that yeah. opens up so many opportunities to, to win off the bat because you can get those older players. But uh, when we're looking at like deal breakers, certainly guys that, that strike out a lot, those, you just guys that can't make contact consistently, mm-hmm. like, those are just going to be the inconsistent type players, like a Javi Baez, who's extremely productive at times. Like he's, he's shown that, I think he went 30-20 last year, extremely productive, but the contact so inconsistent, strikes out so much. Like you just don't know. And so those are those are the things like contact rates, strikeout rates are, are really deal breakers when we're looking at similar players and age, obviously, as well. Then it's kind of looking at just basic data and then going a little deeper into like statcast data. You know, I'm a I'm a big fan of looking at statcast numbers because I do think they help paint a picture. I think sometimes we're we're too reliant on that data, but it's it's really should just be another tool in the toolbox to an extent that we use for research. So looking at like hard hit data, looking at exit velos, like those are all great. And I think a lot of times we want to go to like max EVs. And at one point like that's something that I was really focused on is like max exit velocity, like looking at power potential. But recently what I've been looking more at is 90th percentile exit velocity. Unfortunately, there's not like data out there that say, here's this guy's 90th percentile EV. So you have to literally go into Savant, like download every bad involvement for a player <laughs> and then put in the code to like find the 90th percentile. But I think that's more useful because like Oftentimes we have like one batted ball event that really stands out for a player. Right. But 90th percentile just really paints the picture of more so like how often a guy's hitting the ball hard. So it's opposed to like if, if one guy has like a, a just an, a major outlier of like 117 mile an hour max EV, but he hasn't hit any other ball above 114, then that's that really doesn't paint a great picture of who he really is. So those kind of things and just really finding – and that, that's something I'm trying to do more of is just finding – more and more data that can be useful because, you know, at some point, like we have to continue to be innovative if we're going to, if we're going to continue to move forward and and be winners, because there's always somebody that's going to be finding that data. So finding new things to use. And so that's constantly something I'm working on. It's like 
something new, like the, I've mentioned the 90th percentile exit velocity, like standard deviation launch angle, something that's a, a newer thing. I know Alex Chamberlain has done a lot on that. So mm-hmm. that's something I found very useful as well. And really just looking at those underlying metrics as well, like they don't paint the whole story. Like you shouldn't use those as a complete, like I'm going to rank this guy here just because his stat cast page is all red. And I think that's yep, a, yep. that's what a lot of people do. And I see it on Twitter too often. Like look at his stat cast page. It's all red, but like, what does that really tell you? Like we have to understand what that means and the usefulness behind it. Because in reality, like the, the little picture on baseball savant, like all those numbers are so similar. Like if a couple of them are red, like all of them are going to be red naturally. So yeah, yeah, it's just kind of moving forward and finding, finding more and more data and useful data. It was just hard. Like I, and Alexander's one of those, like, you know, I wish he was on here so I could tell him. Yeah, but, yeah. I was just going to say, this is the moment that I actually, I wish he was here to have that conversation because yeah. he says the same stuff about the sliders. And like, if, if you don't understand the nuance of what goes into the stat, you can be very easily misled by what they have just decided to arbitrarily put up there at the top of the page. Exactly. And he's so good about that too. Like when I read his stuff, like that inspires me to continue to to dig deeper and to find more and more things because I feel like he's just, and he's a, a numbers whiz that like I'll yeah. never be as good as him with that <laughs> stuff. But, you know, I'm constantly trying to learn and, and find new things like that because I think that's so important. And looking, and we've talked about it a little bit on Twitter, actually looking at numbers on like a, a per plate appearance basis, like that's right. so important too. And I think that's something that's often neglected when we look at like projections and we just say, okay, the projection is this, like, so that's fine. Like I'll, I'll take it for what it is, but really it's important to break it down into like a per plate appearance thing and looking at numbers that way. I think that's more efficient because we think about Roto and we think about it being a full season long, or even if you're in a head to head, but really I think it's so important to break it down on an even smaller scale and look at the season is a weekly, even a daily thing and looking at mm-hmm. how how players perform on those daily basis or weekly basis, because that's so important to see. But really, we just see the big picture and the big number. And so when we see those big numbers, well, like Javi Baez, for instance, we'll just go with him because he's streaky. So we see the numbers at the end of the season and say, that's great. He hit 30 home runs. Right. He stole 20 bases. But we forget about those two months where he was just absolutely horrific and just destroyed yeah. your team in like a head-to-head format. So yeah, breaking it, it down even weeks. smaller... Yeah. Yeah, it's so important to do. And I think that's something I'm trying to do more and more of because I think that'll help me be a better player and analyst even. Van, what are your favorite numbers to look at when you're you're trying to, you know, just make a decision or pull the trigger or when you're setting up your your, you know, your podcast for the week and who you're going to talk about? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we we definitely like looking at kind of the old faithful uh metrics like K minus BB percent, like even with all the the metrics that we have out there today. And we mentioned Savant where you can, you can go and look at things that can be such a good indicator, even more rudimentary is looking at guys who had a, a, a great whip, but a bad ERA and, and someone like an Aaron Nola, who that's a name that will probably get more and more helium as we get closer to draft date. Cause everyone looks at like a, I think it was a four, six ERA or something, but then a one thirteen whip. And you start looking closer at it and realize that there was a lot, under the hood that was encouraging there, especially the K rate. Um, So for pitchers, definitely swinging strike rate, um, definitely K minus BB. I'm always looking at kind of depth of arsenal. um, And that's something that can change. And that was actually a question. uh, I can jump to some, some batter ones too, but Chris that I wanted to ask you is, you know, as it relates to pitchers, especially on kind of the prospects or looking more long-term for dynasty, it's so interesting to me of like a guy like Freddie Peralta who has like one or two pitches, but they're elite. 
And then there's other guys that come up that are like Zach Gallon, where they have four pitches that are like a B plus. And do you have kind of a, you know, I'm sure it's not a one size fits all, but I guess my question is like, do you have kind of an approach when you look at up and coming pitchers that you look at a certain stat that you think might be stickier or something might be easier to learn as you grow into your career from like a prospect or a year one, year two type of guy? Yeah, that's tough because and it, we see it so often. Look at all the top pitching prospects that have failed. I mean, yeah, you know, two years ago, like Mackenzie Gore and Forrest Whitley were like the can't missed guys that were going to be the elite, <laughs> and now they're almost a, irrelevant for dynasty, like minimal dynasty value. Like you're not going to get hardly anything for them, and we just see that year over year, and it's so hard. And I think that you know, even Gore, like Gore has one of the best four pitch arsenals, like we had seen in like incredible command, but. I think so much of the game is mental and when a pitcher struggles, it gets in their head. And I think Gore's struggles right now are just so mental that he's just completely messed with everything and it's totally messed up his game, which is tough. I think command is honestly one of the stickier things though, that when we look at a prospect and we, we watch them like that is very telling like a Shane Bieber, for instance, like Bieber was not regarded as a high end prospect. He was a, a great command control pitcher with a fringe arsenal and the fastball that's set in the low nineties. But guys often when they can command pitches, they can really develop the arsenal over time and keep the command, which we saw with Bieber. And I think that's the route. And you mentioned Freddie Peralta, which is interesting. You know, I think we're seeing more and more of these two pitch type guys being successful in, in today's game because if you have two elite pitches I think it can work and there's a blueprint for it like just look at Blake Snell this year like Snell's first half was pretty horrific and then he basically got rid of his changeup completely in the second half that was a terrible pitch and he went so slider heavy and when you throw your best pitch more often you're successful and even Denelson Lamette, like we know he didn't do much of anything this year, injuries, whatever, but his breakout in 2020, that's exactly what he did. He he threw his best pitch more often and he got rid of the crap, basically. Like his slider was so good, his fastball was good enough, and so he got he got by with two pitches because it was so elite. And so I definitely think that you can do that. Obviously, the more pitches, the merrier. Like you mentioned, like Zach Gallen is is great. I mean, he's got four pretty consistent pitches. People are down on Gallon. I'm buying all day. Like I think Gallon's going to be a great rebound candidate this year. But I also think that you're seeing it now. Like if you have two elite pitches, it can work. And I love looking at whiff rates on pitches specifically and swinging strike rates. Like I think those are pretty telling. And when you look at pitchers that like a Shane McClanahan who has three pitches with extremely high whiff rates, like that's pretty telling to me that he can be successful moving forward. So those type of things I really look for. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, well. absolutely. Kind of rambling. <laughs> no, I'm nodding my head over here. And yeah, like you said, I, and look at me wins above fantasy. We just dive in on the players, but like Blake Snell, we just got done talking about how the slider was at like 14% usage. And I think it was June by September, he had notched that all the way up to 34%. So it's like right. something clicked for him. And then in August, he had like a one seven ERA over 36 innings. And it's like, that's what we typically watch is like, you know, breakouts can come and they can almost just like, it's like lightning in a bottle. Right. But when you look and you can point back to an intentional change, that's the stuff that we, we try to look at. And, and I totally mm -hmm. agree what you're saying too, on just kind of looking closer at metrics. I love what Alex Chamberlain did with the, the blast rate, uh, a sub mm -hmm. subset of barrels where it basically removes mm -hmm some of the bad barrels or weak barrels. And it just focused on that 
that dashboard I was looking at going into last year and a guy like Kyle Schwarber was near the very top and it was like, oh man, this could be a breakout. And what do you know? He broke out. So I, I love that. And um, certainly what Alexander Chase, like, you know, the amount of times he's kind of corrected me on Twitter and he's been like, be careful to attribute <laughs> hard hit rate to homers. You know, those are grounders as well. So there's some, some really good uh, metrics that are out there where people are kind of taking that next step. Uh, Christian mm-hmm. Mack is another one at, at Pitcher List who did um, the ideal plate approach. And you can go look at the IPA uh, dashboard that kind of bakes in flares and burners. And, and it shows kind of like a Goldschmidt who will hit for power when he's hitting for power, but he can drop in a good piece of hitting, quote unquote. It kind right. of attributes right. that. And it's not just rolling it all into one crock pot and saying, oh, Goldie's power wasn't as big as it used to be. Well, he's kind of changed who he is as a hitter. So, um, maybe the one last thing, and then I'll, I'll stop talking here, Matt, but, um, was a, a nice article on, on kind of what, what metrics are stickier, um, and, and barrels, which I think everyone's on board that barrels are a great indicator of pop, but barrels per batted ball event tends to be much more predictive year over year to like home run to fly ball rate. Um, so just something to keep an eye on when you're going out to Savant. Um, and, and what indicates, or I guess what drives barrels per batted ball event, there was the highest correlation with exit velocity on fly balls and line drives. That is something you can look at the leaderboard out there on Savant, but it's also not one that pops up on the color slider at the top of the page. So it goes back to what, what you guys are talking about. And I think it just underlines the importance of not just seeing the the picture or, or kind of looking at the guy in a vacuum, but understanding that, that whole puzzle, um, like you guys are saying. So that, those are some things that I look at, but yeah, that definitely answered my question too, Chris. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, uh, a couple of things important to note, right. Is, is what, what goes into a stat in terms of how quickly does it normalize? How many, uh, what's the sample size that you're looking at? If it's going to take half a season to normalize, then you might be looking at some white noise for a little bit, uh, especially on younger players, right? When they're first coming up. Um, and to your point too, about the, the pitchers being able to get away with just a couple of pitches. I think the game has changed in a way that allows for that, right? There's, there's this emphasis on tunneling. So you can, pitches look a lot more similar and there's not as much of a need to have to go through the order three and four times in a start. Uh, so both of those things work to the advantage of a pitcher, especially a pitcher who's got really plus stuff on a couple of pitches. Like you said, get rid of the stuff that's not effective because you don't need that third look or that fourth look in the way that pitchers are kind of used. And, and to your point, man, you know, that's a narrative that then supports what it is that you're seeing. And when the story matches, the performance matches the data, that's where you find like the, the center of that Venn diagram is like the promised land. Right. Um, all right, Chris, I want to talk a lot about, uh, dynasty and, and how to construct a roster and, and looking at things like, like startup drafts and first year player drafts and all that. But we do have to take a break before we get to that. And we'll be right back. Hey, Alex Fast here, and thanks for listening to this podcast on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. If you're a fan, consider supporting all of us by getting a PL Plus subscription, where you're going to get an ad-free website and get access to our Discord, where you can talk to all of our podcast hosts and staff. Plus, you can hang out with our incredible Pitcher List community. It's basically a baseball sanctuary year-round for as low as $8 a month. You can sign up at PitcherList.com backslash plus, and you're going to get your first month free with promo code 
podcast. Also, don't forget to check out everything else we do as well from YouTube videos, live streams, newsletters, off-season articles, TikToks, breakdowns, over 15 baseball podcasts on our network. We can't stop talking about baseball even during the off-season. So sign up for PL Plus today at pitcherlist.com backslash plus and use promo code podcast to get your first month free. All right. Thanks for listening. Let's get back to the show. And we're back. So now we get to talk about the real nuts and bolts here, Chris. Um, if I am starting a, a, a new dynasty league tomorrow, I'm in, in the startup draft. Um, what is the quote unquote, and I do this all the time, the, the visual cue on the audio podcast. Uh, what is the right way to go about constructing that dynasty roster? Oh, I wish I had a great answer for the right way. There's so <laughs> many good ways. I'll tell you what I do. I don't, it may not be right for everybody, but typically I when I'm drafting, I'm looking to win year two with the chance to win year one. Basically, that means I'm not going to overdraft older guys that might not be relevant in the second year because I think it's easy to get farsighted in Dynasty and it's easy to get short-sighted. It's easy to say, all right, I got to win right away and draft a redraft roster and then you totally get screwed. That happens very mm-hmm. fast. And you see people do it, and they leave the league quick. And that's not what a dynasty is about. Like, dynasty is about building right. a long-term team and building a quote-unquote dynasty. So you should be in the league long-term. So people that build redraft rosters in dynasty typically bolt quick. They try to win and get out with the money, which I don't think that's the way to play right. dynasty baseball. But when you look at winning year two, you're typically looking at guys that are going to be contributing to your team much longer. So obviously you're looking at guys that – will help you win right away, but also are going to be around long-term. So you want the younger guys. And typically that doesn't really involve going heavy on pitching early because over year to year, I mean, look at the turnover we've seen. There's so few aces that have been there at the top consistently and guys get hurt. Like you think in 2020, if you had drafted Jacob deGrom, you would have thought you would have had a workhorse for a long time on your on your mm-hmm. roster, even with age, because the the so few innings he had thrown and a little mileage on his arm, and and while he has pitched as the best pitcher in baseball when he's on the mound, you can't rely on the innings. So, I think that's important to to look at. You need starters obviously to win, but the the base should be around hitting. So I'm looking for those hitters that are going to help you win in two to three to four years and be there consistently. And so building the construction starts with a good foundation. But that obviously matters only to an extent because if you you can win the early rounds and still lose the draft big time in the middle, right. so it's making sure you you hit on those players and and balancing and the the far sightedness makes everyone want to go prospect heavy because all those guys are going to be the next superstar, right? right. Everybody's going to be the next Acuna or Tatis or Soto, <laughs> but. How often has that failed us? Look at look at what happened with Jared Kelnick this year when he came up, and I still like Kelnick. I still think he's going to be a good player, but. We got so spoiled with the Sotos. We got so spoiled with Acuna and Tatis, like those guys that come up and just dominated right away. Even Vladdy. I mean, look at Vladdy. He took a couple yeah. years. Yeah. So if you had bought low on Vladdy, which was hard to do, but even before this year, you could have got him at a reasonable price that compared to where he is now. Sure. So I think that when you're looking to draft prospects, like honestly, like I avoid him until later on because oftentimes you can get them by knowing the guys that are going to pop up. And even this year, like – Think about how many prospects just popped up this year and how many you could have picked up off the waiver wire that were just so good and were on anybody's radar. Like Anthony yeah. Volpe, for instance, who is now like my number 11 prospect, like 
he wasn't even on like my top 400. So if you were proactive <laughs> on the wire, now you've got a, a dominant player like that. And prospects for me are trade chips, like, because everybody wants them. Somebody's mm-hmm. always selling. So like I'm constantly churning prospects on the dynasty roster for, so from that extent, like from the beginning, like I'm not really going heavy on them unless there's like a great value, like unless a Julio Rodriguez or Bobby Witt are falling like pretty significantly. Like I'm just looking at guys that have, have proven they can do it and will do it moving forward. So sorry, I just keep rambling. I love talking no. about dynasty. So yeah, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to go back to you guys to hear a little bit from you. So that's kind of like the, my thoughts on the early construction at least. Yeah, Van, question for you. Um, in a dynasty format, who is maybe somebody that uh, falls? Um, I'm going to throw a name out as an example. Hopefully I'm not stealing the ones in your head, but like a, a Nelson Cruz. I did a, a, a startup dynasty draft while we were all in, in COVID, and I was able to get him so late. Um, and, and he was, you know, amazing. He's, he's, it's like, he's it doesn't age at all. Um, but he drops so much, much further than he would have in just a, a standard redraft league. So who are players like that? Who, uh, who kind of rise or fall a lot, you think in a, in a dynasty format? Yeah. I mean, it, it age is the quickest thing you can point to for sure. And I, like, you know, the, in business, there's like the 80, 20 rule. This is definitely an oversimplification, but I think there's something to be said about like, you could still probably look at 80% as like win now, unless your league is hyper competitive. You save that 20%, depending on how deep your bench is for, in my opinion, the guys who are kind of next up and you can kind of load the hopper. Like you said, Chris, you can use those as trade chips, or if you're really excited about them, hold on and see what pans out. But I think guys specifically, it's like, look at Joey Votto and the year he just had, and he told us what he was going to do. And he went out and blasted like 37 (laughs) homers. And it's just so impressive. And talk about points league. I mean, Votto has always been kind of a, a, you know, on base specialist. He kind of traded some of that off for power, but that's a great example. And and we saw it across the whole league, honestly, this year, you know, with the rise of the veterans, it was like Starling Marte, Marcus Simeon, even like Wainwright and Charlie Morton were like having fantastic seasons. And these are guys that you could easily acquire with trades. And sometimes in the case of like Avado and a 12 team, I'm sure you could have grabbed them off the wire at the start of this season. So yeah. I'm always for, as long as you're like, and especially if you're playing in like a playoff format, like a head to head, you don't have to be the best team the entire season to see a window where you can kind of, you know, pick up some, some uh, old crusty veterans in the words of Paul Sporer there and, and put them on your, your roster. So I think some of those guys fall and it's probably depending on team context. It makes sense. If you're, you know, if you're not in win now mode and you're trying to load up for the future, you probably don't want a Joey Votto. It's not the right fit, but I think those are are ones that you definitely can find kind of a different shape of upside. Uh, Robbie Ray's another great example of it where just because a guy's, you know, age 30 doesn't mean that they're completely done and back to what we were talking about with pitching prospects and, you know, the Mackenzie Gore, or even Nate Pearson or definitely Forrest Whitley, like for those guys, you probably could have flipped a Forrest Whitley for a Robbie Ray. And, and that's kind of the, the moral of the story is that like sometimes a bird in the hand, a guy that you know that's out there can be more productive if you're trying to kind of win now. So that that's uh, hopefully that answered your question Matt but that's kind of where I stand with some of that I'm curious Chris if you have a a formula too on like I I threw out 80 20 but does it always just depend on where your team is or do you kind of like to have a certain 
concoction of, of youth versus production? You know, it just totally depends like where you're at, I guess. And even still, like you mentioned, like picking up guys on the waiver, like even if you're rebuilding, like imagine if you picked up a Joey Votto and flipped him at like the, you could flip him at the deadline and get a decent prospect for him because some win now team would have wanted him. So I guess it's the constant like being active. And I think that matters is being active constantly and being able to pick up those guys. And it's like the stock market, like dynasty is all about like buying and selling at the right time, knowing when to hold, knowing when to sell. Like it's, it's like play in the market. And that's exactly what you have to do in dynasty. I think is just knowing when guys values are at peak. And there's a certain time when prospects think about prospect hype, like you get on Twitter and someone's always hyping up a prospect and, and people sometimes get behind that. And sometimes that's the best time to sell a prospect because you may never get a better return. And when they're most hyped and funny enough, like hype doesn't always come from just performing on the field. Like hype comes a lot of different ways. Like we've seen on Twitter, like somebody hypes up a guy, his ADP jumps to the moon. You, you see it all the time. And that's typically how I look at things, just looking to buy and sell and it age, yeah, I, it depends on where I'm at, I guess. Like, obviously, I want to keep the team younger, but if I'm in contention, then I'm willing to sacrifice some things, like getting a Nelson Cruz. Like, you know, I in one of my dynasty leagues where, you know, I've been in the mix, like I've been in first or second in the last three years. Like, I went out and traded for him last year because, you know, he's still valuable to a win now mm-hmm. team. And he doesn't cost much because they're like, oh, he's 40. Like, he's going to stop right. at some point. So, you know, I <laughs> think there's. Yeah, <laughs> you'd think he, he may, he may just be the ageless wonder, but you never know. So like, I'm constantly like, you constantly have to look at that. And I think that just knowing where your team is matters, but even still, like, even if you're a rebuilding team, like don't avoid a Joey Votto on the wire, in my opinion, because there's value into picking him up. He gets hot like he did. You trade him. Like you get a younger yep. piece because someone needs Joey Votto on their roster. You're keeping it from them. That's just the name of the game. Like, then you get something in return for them. So that's kind of that's kind of how I like to play and just being active, picking up those guys. And that's something I've learned. Like I've always been like I was passive for a while on the wire, like in Dynasty. I'm like, well, I like this guy at the, at the back end of my roster too much to churn it. But you always have to have those roster spots that you can churn because yeah. you're. You, I mean, those guys are just wasting spots for the most part. That you're missing those guys you can pick up. Like think about all the breakouts each year that you could pick up that you're just missing if you're just busy holding on to guys. And I was so guilty of that for a long time, but yeah, that's totally my downfall is like, yeah. oh, I'm going to give this guy up and he's going to be the next Mike Trout. Right. right? right. right. <laughs> and I'm going to feel like a moron for doing it. Cause I went and picked up Joey Votto for a year, but yeah. I think what I'm hearing you say, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I definitely don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that every player has a value. Those values fluctuate throughout the season. So even if this particular guy doesn't fit your five-year plan or your two-year plan or your three-year plan, grab him because you might be able to flip him for somebody who does. Uh, and you can kind of get some of the juice out of that orange. Um, what about existing leagues? And, and I, I know this becomes even harder to try and, and speak to because it really depends. Like, Do you have a uh, a beast of a team that's at the top of the league? Are you totally in rebuilding mode? Uh, but it, if you're looking at like how to approach a first year player draft or like right now, who are, who do you think are the buy lows or the, the sell highs? Um, how are you going into the 2022 season in, in existing leagues? Yeah. Well, I think that that's something that you have to think about on like a case by case basis. And here's something that I think is important is that oftentimes people just want to get stuck in a rebuild forever. Like I hate rebuilding. <laughs> it's sure. It can be fun to rebuild. Like you hit on the prospects, but like 
I feel like a lot, I see players all the time in Dynasty that are just like in endless rebuilds. They're constantly yes. trading for prospects. Like I, that doesn't win you leagues. And like, yeah, prospects are fun. Like I love watching prospects in minor league baseball, but those guys don't win you leagues. And I think when you're rebuilding, I think you should be trading for like younger established players. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you're you're not going to be able to trade for like Acuna or Soto who are young, but they're elite. Like that's not what you're doing when you're rebuilding, but you're looking for those younger guys that haven't hit their peak value yet. So you're looking for, I guess, the buy low per se, even if they haven't like been low in value. Like I'm just looking for the younger guys that can help you right away because I don't want to constantly be rebuilding and constantly be buying prospects because you're constantly going to be stuck in that state of mind and you're never going to be winning. Like dynasty leagues are made to win. Like you play to win the game. (laughs) That's just what it is. I feel like that's a football thing, like a dynasty football thing. It turns over so much faster, right? You you get a guy in a first year player draft. You got really good draft picks in football. Those guys in a year or two are, are maybe like league winners, right? Baseball, it takes forever for that to pay off. And so like you're saying, if you're in a constant rebuild, you're, you're constantly just waiting forever for these things that may or may not happen. This entire farm system, they got to make it through and then then they've got to show that they can succeed at the major league level it's it, it's a much longer play and a longer burn in, in baseball for sure yeah and and draft picks like first year player picks like everybody overvalues because they're like oh mm-hmm. my gosh like this pick is so valuable this is gonna be like the next superstar it's like i'm just constantly trading picks because you know they're just like the straight ships you just keep trading up sure. i mean somebody always is going to overpay for it and you can get a solid major leaguer that's going to contribute for a draft pick that won't even be playing on your active roster for four or five years. So I think those, right. those things really matter. And that's in the off season, like before first year player drafts, like I'm constantly trying to cycle those picks because people are getting so hyped. Like, yes, the draft's coming up. Like I'm so excited for the draft. And they're like, all right, I'll trade whatever for this pick. So you can sure. really exploit that a lot. But well, yeah. I mean, and then whoever you get, you can then wait and see, let, let everybody else in your league dev- have those developing players, wait and see which ones pan out and then just flip them back. Right. If yeah. that's a guy you want, flip them back. Uh, Van, what's uh, what's your kind of like overall feel on, on dynasty rosters in general, whether it's existing first year player drafts, all those things, what is it that you think really separates being a good dynasty player from being a good redraft player? Well, I think we mentioned the plate discipline earlier, and I think that's an important note. I, I had circled a guy like Tyler O'Neill because he's such an Homer Cardinal fan here, but <laughs> O'Neill obviously exploded and steamer loves him going into this next year. I think they've got him at like 37 homers, 13 steals. And yet he's got this 31, 30, or it might be worse, uh, an awful strikeout rate. And mm-hmm that kind of pairs up with something that we're seeing with baseball in general right now, as well with a guy like Fernando Tatis jr. Who is looked at as kind of the guy that you want to model after he's rocking 29% strikeout rates. So it it calls some of that into question, but I think like to me, when I look at the, the landscape of, of dynasty and strategy, what I wrestle with the most, and I don't know that I have the answer for it is we have these guys like Soto, Tatis, Acuna, Vlad, even though Vlad, we had to wait a little bit, but then it seems like equally we have these cautionary tales with, with Jerickson, Jerickson, Profar, Keston, Hura, <laughs> Glaber Torres, I got burnt on. So then it's like, you know, I have Kelnick in, in one of my main dynasty leagues. And it's like, I see these prospect rankings and Chris, it's like you and Eric, you have them in, 
and Kelnick is very high and I love Kelnick and you know, all the Twitter videos, like I'm on the hype train, yeah. but then I see like an Austin Riley right, right next to him. And I think to myself talking to you, Mr. Braves fan, I, I, I think to myself, <laughs> like he's kind of already figured it out and evolved. So when I, when I see he's still age 24 for me as like a manager, I'm thinking like, again, bird in the hand, Yes, Kelnick has the ceiling to be a top five pick. Maybe Riley will never get there because he's not five category. He doesn't have the speed, but I'm always looking for, and Kelnick is just one example. Maybe Andrew Vaughn or somebody else is a, a better one, but that's what I wrestle with the most is like, what about the guys who you know are solid with the potential to be great next to these boom bust? I could be a top five overall pick. And how do you, I guess when you guys are ranking, how do you kind of evaluate if a player is quote unquote, can't miss? Cause that's such a big question for me. Yeah, that's so tough because you, you see, and I think we're, and it's just being a game, like playing the game of being right a little more often than you're wrong because so many guys bust, you know, it's like, we see these guys and like, I, I think there were some warning signs that we missed with Kelnick, like he he did have some swing and miss issues, like the bag average inconsistencies. Like he still posted solid bag averages as like a, a minor leaguer, but there was some swing and miss. And like now I look at Kelnick, yeah, the power speed is legit, but like is he a, a 260 type hitter? That's highly possible, even though like he's shown as like a, a 290 hitter in the minors. And I think that's so important too, and that we miss. And oftentimes we miss when we when we don't watch. And that's something at the Arizona Fall League this year, like it really hit me as we're watching these guys. Like you're watching like Jeter Downs, for instance, like Downs was one of my favorite guys. He had a terrible year this year. Like he fell off rankings and then he statistically had a good fall league, but you just watched him and he just got exploited with breaking balls. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's watching and knowing those little things that really help, I think. And and that's something that's so hard to do is just to watch so many at bats with these, especially minor leaguers, but like, Downs like one at bat. I remember he. I think it was it was against Landon Knack for the Dodgers, but Knack threw him six straight breaking balls, and like he just couldn't even touch him because like he was found like fouling him in the dirt, or then he struck out on him because he knew that Downs couldn't hit that. And yeah. I just wonder like wow. we we have to see these things. And so when you see a bat like for for instance like Julio Rodriguez has always been above Kelnick for me like for the last at least like year and a half because Julio Rodriguez makes adjustments in the box. And he can get any pitch anywhere. Like, he's not missing those breaking balls. Like, Rodriguez, you watch him, and he's not fooled on a breaking pitch. And he's going to hit a pitch where it's thrown to him. And he still has that massive power, too. Like, when he gets the pitch, he's going to hit it out of the park. And so, for instance, like, I think the guy that can do that is a much better player than the guy who has that volatility. And so, for me, like, there's a decent gap between J-Rod and Kelnick. Like, I still think Kelnick can be good. And I think Kelnick can be a 25-homer, 15-stolen base guy. But with batting average volatility, but J-Rod, for instance, like J-Rod's going to be a, a 290 hitter in my opinion, because this bat to ball skills are just that good. So I think, and that's something I've got to be better about is consistently like watching hole at bats. And that's something we don't see. Like when you watch the Twitter highlights, the highlights are the yeah. highlights for a reason. And like, you only see the best of the best, but when you watch hole at bats, when you watch these hole outings for starters, like it paints a much bigger picture. Like, yeah, a, a minor leaguer can have like elite strikeout rates, like from a pitching standpoint. But if they're missing the zone consistently or they're missing their spots in the zone, like they're going to get hit up when they get to the big leagues. And so I think it's just for me, the thing I need to do more is just consistently watch like 
whole at bats, like whole games, like whole weeks of at bats for these guys, because I think that's more telling than just seeing the numbers there and saying like, hey, like this guy looks like he's going to be legit. And that's, I think what I feel with Kelnick for is like, yeah, he posted the numbers. Like I obviously watched Kelnick and like he was really good, but you know, when I was sitting there at the fall league and we saw these guys like game after game, like it really hit like, yeah, you see things here that you can't see in the numbers, and that's so big. Yeah, that's yeah. that's and, super yeah. cool insight. Uh, yeah, and I think it, it's so cool to hear the guys who don't have those visible flaws because I think to, in today's game, we're seeing the ascension of brand new early players turn into fantasy all-stars or just MLB all-stars right. so much quicker that like it underlines the importance to get to hit on those when it happens. You know what I mean? It's not like you can just right. say we haven't seen him. So he has to be ranked behind Austin Riley because this guy could turn around and be, you know, true 50 Homer power for instance, but right. yeah, sorry, Matt, I think I stepped on you. No, no, that's fine. It's, it's totally fine. I, I think it's a really important conversation. And I think it goes back to what you're talking about before, where if you're looking at, at a stat line at the end of the year, it, it's not showing you the volatility. Uh, something that Scott Chu has talked a lot about is kind of using those rolling graphs. And, and um, I think that looking at things like that in 15 game sample sizes, you know, it's a, it's small, but it also shows you kind of those, the, the volatility level. Maybe we need a volatility metric. Yeah. Uh, somebody can write that up and, uh, and win a, an award. Um, <laughs> but I think it really does matter. And it's kind of where that, that eye test meets the narrative meets the stat line. Um, and you know, I listen, the talent at the major league level is better. That's why they're there. So if anybody's going to exploit it, it's going to be at that level. Uh, Chris, I, I, we've been, we've kept you for a long time and, and I apologize for that. Um, I, I could talk about this all night, yeah. but I do want to get to one more thing before we, we, uh, we call it an episode. Um, and that's talking about ranking guys who have speaking of volatility, been all over the place. And, um, in guys like Christian Yelich, Cody Bellinger, uh, Lindor coming off of what he did last year. How in the world do you rank these guys? And I'm going to, I'm going to give you a little story. We actually, in a dynasty league, I was talking to a buddy, we're co-managing and we were offered, you know, uh, Lindor for what on paper was an insanely good deal for us. And we were both like, ah, we want to win now. This could be a league winner, but it could be a huge. I mean, if we give up the the prospect and the and the arm in a pitching um, premium kind of league, and he he stinks again, like that's a real significant loss. That's a, a lot of volatility to try and take on for a team that you think is a win now team. So, how in the world do you put Christian Yelich, Cody Bellinger, and Francisco Lindor into a rankings list with with all these other guys? <laughs> I wish I had a great answer because I, I look at it every day and I like, like, honestly, like I'm adjusting ranks like pretty constantly as like I'm, I'm researching. So like I update my rankings pretty much daily, but it's like every day I look at it, I'm like, this just doesn't feel right. And, mm -hmm. you know, man, for Bellinger, he's one that, yeah, I, I value Yelich much above Bellinger at this point because Bellinger, yeah, while he had an elite season where he won MVP, it was only two months of being really, really good. And the rest of his season was, was not very good. And yeah, I mean, people say like, well, he's still uh, over that span, the rest of the season, he still hit like what 20 some homers in the second half, but yeah, he hit like two thirty in the process. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you can you find look, those guys, right? Yeah. You look at yeah. any, there's so many guys that hit two forty and hit 30 bombs. I mean, that's a common thing in today's game. So how valuable is Bellinger? 
And everybody's so quick to say, all right, well, it was the injuries last year. Like he still had the lingering from the shoulder injury. It was recovering. But why did he change his swing weeks before the season after winning MVP? Mm -hmm. That absolutely baffled me when it came out right before the 2020 season started that he was changing his swing a week before. Like that should have told us a lot right there that something wasn't right. And we missed it. Everybody was still drafting him like he was going top five in redraft leagues and obviously in dynasty just as high. So Bellinger to me is an instance where, yeah, I mean like even his rookie year, I mean, at 21 years old, he still performed really well, but to an extent, like he's really only been elite for like two months of his career. Yelich on the other hand, at least was really good for most Mm -hmm. of his career and then became elite. And I think you can pinpoint like Bellinger. I can't pinpoint anything. Like I don't see anything in the profile that says like, he needs to do this to get back to the level. But Yelich, at least from this standpoint, Yelich, the problem is pretty easy to see. It's his, his ground ball rate. Ground he's ball just rate. pounding the ball into the ground. That's all he's doing. And he needs to get back to, to lifting the ball a little more. The, the stat cast metrics are off the charts. Like, he's still hitting the ball very hard. Like you mentioned earlier, the hard hit rate only matters so much when you're hitting the ball into the ground right. constantly. So that that really factors in. And... I just think Yelich has a a tangible thing where he can look at it and say, like, he needs to do this. And I believe that he can see this. And and people are like, that's what coaches are for. They're going to work and help him to lift the ball a little more. So for me, it's easier to look at Yelich and say, like, all right, the numbers are still good. Like, he's still making good contact. Like, nothing's really fallen off from that standpoint. Like, from a contact standpoint, he still makes solid contact. Yeah, his strikeout rate ballooned in 2020, but... You think about it. It was a weird year. Like honestly, sure. like how much did 2020 even matter? Like I, I, I'm putting. I very... honestly think there were teams that went out there and almost treated it like I'm going to try and like a spring training, right? Like I'm going to yeah. work on this, and yeah. if I strike out half the time, I don't care. Yeah, right. I, I, and... I'm with you all the way, Chris. I I, I took Yelich in our uh, our pitcherless mock at. 73 and and had to answer to Nick Pollock on our recap show. And he's like, that seems early, man. I was laughing with him, but he's, and he said, Bellinger went around a hundred. Where do you find the difference there? But I'm right with you with Yelich. Like he was the guy who kind of started that launch angle revolution in a way by fixing his ground ball rate. The, the 55% he had this past season was the highest he had since 2017 when he was that kind of 2020 guy. But what I think a lot of people brush over too with Yelich is in the shortened season, albeit shortened, he was on pace for 35 homers. So with the bad strikeout rate, really we're looking at 2021 as the ugly season. He had COVID right in the middle of it. He still, I mean, the nine homers was insanely low. I can't even believe he didn't hit double digits, but the reality is like, he still has a little bit of that speed that you're probably not going to get from Bellinger. And yeah, I think like, if he's a 2015 guy with the potential to go back to being a 3015 guy, all he has to do is make that one correction. Like what a good bet. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier on like upside that doesn't look like a 21 year old, you know what I mean? And that's mm-hmm. like, that's what excites me about Yelich, but maybe I'm just, you know, lost in the NL central going up to Brewers games and, and hoping <laughs> and dreaming. But you guys got a nice ballpark to do it in if he's going to do it. My yeah. concern with Yelich is that there's some sort of hidden um, physical limitation, whether that is a nagging or injury or a chronic, something that is just not allowing him to 
to get at the baseball the way that he was when he was successful and that it's not as simple as a coaching tweak because he's got some sort of physical limitation there. But, um, you know, that I get, that's just me being really afraid and, and upset because in that, that uh, draft I was talking about, I took, I think I took him in, in that at the one, one and it's killed me, you know, uh, because that was coming off him being, uh, elite. So, um, I, I'm worried because he's still on my roster and nobody wants him. <laughs> um, and, uh, and at the same time, hopeful because, uh, you know, like, as you have both pointed out, there's, there's reason for optimism there. What about Lindor? Somebody tell me what is going on with, with what happened with him. <laughs> I wish I had a good answer. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> he obviously had a weird season. I know what Steve's talked about. He watches the Mets all the time is, um, you know, it's kind of the narrative of pressing when you get to a new contract, a new yeah. team, and usually pressing is being too aggressive. But Lindor was being way too passive to start the season, uh, looking at too many pitches, the swing rates were way down. He started to get right a little bit. I think it was like in a uh, I don't have it right in front of me, but it might have been like a July month where he he looked really good, like he was putting it all together. And then he got hit with another injury. Um, all that said, he did have a 248 Babbitt last year. He's a career 280 guy. Um, and yeah, all in all, he ended up with 20 homers and 10 steals. So I think like in 125 games, if you're getting 20 homers, 10 steals, that's a decent floor. And I know Steamer next year has him at 30 and 13. So I like it. Maybe, you know, they have his average at, at 252. I would bet the over, he's still only 27. He's younger than Trey Turner. I think a lot of us forget that. Um, yeah. But I, I, I still believe in Lindor. I think with the Mets, you know, certainly with Showalter coming in, there's going to be some new energy with that ball club. And I'm hopeful that Lindor is kind of, you know, closer to what he has been than what he was last year. If you need me to help talk you off the ledge there, Matt, but that's two cents. But well, we, yeah. we, we said no to the trade. So now I'm, now I'm really, uh, uh I'm worried. I, I kind of felt like whatever I did was going to be wrong. Um, you know, it's interesting. One, one last thing to consider here when you're looking at projections for players like that, maybe I'm way off here because that happens and, and you're both welcome to tell me that I'm an idiot, but I feel like a lot of times with like a, a Bellinger, you look at his projections and they're like a splitting the difference between the two different outcomes. You're, you're either going to get, you know, player A who goes back to form or player B who stinks. And the projections are, are like hedging between the two. And so they're almost guaranteed to be wrong, not because the approach is wrong per se in terms of trying to find where he fits, but you're really not likely to get the, the in-between. You're likely to get one of two much more likely outcomes, right? So with players like this, I feel like they're especially hard because you try and go and look at Steamer or the Bad X when that comes out or any of those those projection systems that are excellent and really, really important to use as part of your research. And players like that, it, it's not necessarily giving you a picture of of the most likely outcomes. It's giving you a blending of the two potential uh, ways that a season could go. Am I Am I wrong with that? I think that's fair because I think a lot of times projections use like, you know, three year running average. And so, I mean, when you get these guys that have had two extremes, like we've seen with Bellinger and Yelich, like, and even Lindor, it's going to probably land somewhere in the middle there. And so they're interesting. Like it's interesting. I think it's steamers projection of Bellinger is pretty fair at 243 batting average. Like that's really who he is, I think. And so that's probably pretty fair, but yeah, he could, he could hit 40 home runs again. He could mm -hmm. hit, 
15 home runs. Like, you know, we saw him hit 10 over 350 games or 350 plate appearances. Excuse me. That'd be pretty bad if he only hit 10 in 350 games. <laughs> so there's volatility. And so it seems like it's somewhere in the middle ground here. I, actually, Lindor, I think, is fair because he was so consistent for so long prior to 2020. We sure. saw, yeah, we saw so much consistency there. And so I, I actually like, yeah, I agree with you though, Van. The batting average, I'd, I'd bet the over. I think that he definitely is going over 252, but that's based off him hitting 258 in 2020 and 230 in 2021. Meanwhile, I mean, you look at the previous three seasons for that, he's 273, 277, 284. So consistency. I think that right, we see him right. bounce back a little bit. Yeah. I think the two, like the two words you threw out there, consistency and volatility is like, that's almost the answer to the riddle that I would say, Matt is like, you're right. You can't just look at all these projections and just chalk it up as like, this will be what you get at the end of the season, knowing that they're kind of taking that middle ground projections will probably, probably be a little bit closer on a steady Eddie, like Chris Taylor, for example, than they will be for like a Bobby Witt Jr. or something like that. So I think it's just maybe goes back to that finding the balance as you're, as you're drafting or building your team that you don't have, you know, 10 Cody Bellingers that you're kind of yeah, mixing right. that in with it with a stabilizer and hopefully when you look at the you know the full picture of your team you got some some high floor you got some roller coasters same with the pitching staff when you if you got a U Darvish you need to pair them with kind of a, a stable Marcus Stroman that type of a thing but uh yeah that's a really good point I hadn't thought about the fact that sometimes with projections you're you're either going to get something a lot better or a lot lower and it just happens to be where the the dart throw is on the systems sure yeah well, all things worth considering. Gentlemen, thank you so much for, for being a part of this with me tonight. Um, that does bring us to the end of this episode, but I want to make sure that each of you gets a chance to shout out your stuff and let people know where they can find you if they don't already, which I'm sure they do. Uh, Van, if you could go first and, and you know uh, remind us where we can find you on Twitter and talk about uh, where we can find the pod and, and where your work is and, and all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm on Twitter at Van underscore verified. The account itself is not verified, um, but <laughs> then wins above wins above fantasy is our podcast. You guys can find it on you know any of the any of the platforms. We're every other Monday in the off season, and you guys can find us on the main on the corner pitcherless feed. And uh, yeah, my my partner in crime, Steve Giswelli, is great as well, and he's at Stav S T A V eight eight one eight. Um, but yeah, pre- really appreciate it. And uh, it was awesome talking with you, Matt and Chris as well. So I'll turn it over to you, Chris. Yeah. I, I feel like we had to kept going for another two hours. Probably. It was such a good conversation. <laughs> I hate it. Hate us ending, but yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on and yeah. on Twitter at rotocleg C L E G G all my works over at Fantrax and the podcast with podcast with Eric Cross, uh, the Fantrax tool shedding, check that out on again, any platform. So yeah, be sure to listen to all our pods, man. It's always good information you learn so much from so many people and i even think like just talking with you guys like we're, we're constantly learning so every time i talk to somebody on like a podcast like we can learn from them so like that's what's so great about this is we, we should constantly be striving to learn and be better and so the more you listen to the more input you hear from people like i think you can really learn so check check out all the pods we got three different pods on on here representing right now so definitely check them out absolutely absolutely 
And, uh, you know, on that note, it's just a good reason for you to come back and, and we can talk about some more stuff another yeah. time. So once again, thank you both so much. Uh, and I'm going to tap my buddy Alexander, who wasn't here for the episode, but I'm going to ask him if he can let the, uh, the people at home know where they can find Dugout Study Hall, where they can find him and where they can find me uh, on Twitter. Well, they can find you on Twitter at the corked mat. I'm on Twitter at chase underscore rate. And most importantly, you can find our podcast on Twitter at Dugout Study Hall, where you can send us some questions. Please be sure to subscribe to the Pitcherless podcast feed if you haven't done that already. Leave us a good review if you can be so kind. And if you're not already, please consider becoming a PL Plus member so that you can harass us on the PL Discord. And that's it for me. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next time.